You're listening to The Media Narrative. I'm Rob Hoschel. I recently got to spend some time with one of my musical heroes, Billy Bragg. He's an English singer and songwriter who's also been very comfortable in the role of political activist. He makes music that's beautifully crafted and that, well, aims to repair the world. He's also an author with a new book out called Roots, Radicals, and Rockers. It's about the history and impact of skiffle music. I caught up with him after a reading and book signing in Brookline, Massachusetts. Billy, thank you so much for your time. I know it's been a long day and you've just been so generous with your time talking to all the people in the book signing line. So I, I want to ask you first, why a book? You are a man who's mm. paid tribute to great artists and great music through yeah. music. Why did you feel that this needed to be a book? Well, I think uh, when you think how much people pay for a uh, MP3, if they pay for it at all, and then how much they pay for a book. Yeah. It's a no-brainer, <laughs> isn't it really? A no-brainer. So yeah, it's like a. It's not. I don't think you can make a living writing books, really. But it's just something to do. That's not just the same old, same old. When you've been making records for like I have for over thirty years and touring, you need a break from it. You need to do something else that focuses your energy, so that when you come back to playing again, you're excited for it. Otherwise, it, you, you know, you just kind of you get in a rut. And I don't really want to get in a rut. I love playing. I like to be in that situation where I'm going, like, oh, here we go again. So, at the end of a particularly long campaign for the album Tooth and Nail. I needed to, to do something that got me off the road. And I knew that if I said I was going to write a book, I'd need time and space to do that. So that kind of was, was my way of sort of grounding myself in a project that had me at home for a long time. And I really enjoyed doing it. And did you know Skiffle was going to be the topic? Yeah. I mean, before I said I was writing the book, I tried, um, I sat down and see if, see if I could write anything about it. And I had about 30,000 words when I said to the publisher, I think I've got a book on Skiffle coming. And my partner who manages me is kind of like prefers me to do rock and roll gigs because you can make money. You know, I can make more money in, on a good weekend at festivals in England than they paid me to write the book. Mm. But that's not really what it's about. It's really about doing something that engages you. And I think, um, as you can see from the book, it's you know it ended up being quite a hefty volume and, and a lot of context and a lot of uh, a lot of connections made in there. I found it really, really intriguing going through the 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 1950s and the history of jazz and, and all that other stuff. I really enjoyed myself doing it. And we were just talking earlier about who owns this music, and I really liked what you said, that skiffle, like any other kind of music, belongs to, to everyone. You know, I can understand why people have concerns about cultural appropriation, but I think in the end, music is one of the best ways to break down barriers between ethnicity and, and nation and uh, class. And so to say that you can't play my music because you're not X, Y, Z, you can't say that to some, some uh, kid who's inspired by what he hears. I mean, for instance, I was at a uh, folk festival at the weekend and um, there was an uh, indigenous Canadian singer there who uh, kind of dressed in sort of what you might call hip hop garb, you know, he had a he had a sort of baseball cap and a t-shirt and long shorts and that. And when he did his his songs, they were in the hip hop form, but but also he he accompanied himself by strumming gentle chords on an acoustic guitar, and then he would switch into his own native uh, indigenous language and beat the guitar like a drum. And this mixture of all these styles just blew my mind. It really, I really thought that's you know that is so brilliantly brought those things together because obviously he was talking about indigenous issues you know 
in Canada this year, it's their 150th uh, anniversary becoming a dominion and not a colony. And the, the, the indigenous uh, population, Can Canadian indigenous Canadians have a lot to say about that. And he uses the hip hop form to say that because that's the most accessible form to him. Obviously, he could sing it in his own uh, uh, Native American tongue and, and music, but he would never get in your timeline and my timeline doing that. So hip-hop provides him with, a, with a, a way to get his message out to more and more people. And I can't imagine... Uh, uh, you know, people who come from the hip hop tradition saying to him, "No, you can't come in, buddy," because you know the Native Americans have have been uh, as you know wronged over the years as anybody on this continent, and that they should find common cause with hip hop and able to put that. I think that's a tribute to the hip hoppers and what they've done with their work to maintain the edge that it still has. That now, to the extent where it's become arguably the dominant form now of popular music, whereas rock rock or rock and roll was the dominant form in the 20th century. Hip-hop now is much more of a, of, a, of a dominant form, and I think people should be proud of that rather than start drawing lines and saying, you can't come over that line. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. I mean, teaching young musicians as I do, that seems to be the currency that everyone has in common these days is hip-hop. You know, before it was the guitar, you know, and, from, and skiffle was the beginning of that. That was that. The guitar was the common instrument that everybody used to express their views. It was through that. It was a new instrument. It belonged to that generation. Now it's beats. Now the digitization of music. It's the accessibility of uh, of of beats and the ability of um, you know to be able to use a laptop to put those things together. That is now what's accessible to everybody. You know, and and that that is now the the arguably the most uh, not only the most dominant but also the most valid form. Uh, so. That it should be accessible to everyone is, a, I think, that's a, a, a step forward for, for music. It's reborn again in the, in the form of hip hop. Um, and, you know, when it's, you've even got Ed Sheeran, you know, the classic white boy with a guitar. It turns out he's not playing like Bob Dylan. You know, he's playing like Chuck D. I think that's a good thing. Can you draw a connection between Skiffle or at least the, the way Skiffle transferred and where we're at now with hip hop? Um, I think it's possible to, to see there are still people who, who are using um, uh, music in a revolutionary way, in the way the Skiffle did. If you look, in my, I'm not overly familiar with all the styles in North America at the moment, but if you look in my own country, uh, there's a form of uh, hip-hop mixed with uh, Jamaican dancehall music that we call grime, mm -hmm. that's uh, predominantly urban black music in the UK. And those guys are still... Um, using music to to talk to their community, to reflect their community, and to and to 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 get into our faces as well by making music. Whereas you know, sort of mainstream music has sort of reverted back to entertainment uh, now because I don't think music is any more the vanguard uh, 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 role it had in the 20th century in youth culture. In some ways. Uh, you know, the, the internet and those means of communication have superseded it. But for the grime community, it's still their way of talking to one another and to the, and to the outside world. And it's significant, I think, that they were the only genre to stand up in support of Jeremy Corbyn during our election because black musicians haven't really done that before. We did it with Red Wedge in the 1980s, you know, and there, and there were uh, uh, Afro-Caribbean artists involved in that but this was a kind of new thing for grime and I mean Corbyn's a little old geezer he's not like some sort of smart hip guy right. so they should find common cause with him I think it's very very significant and it blows a hole in all those uh, boring articles about where's political music gone I mean it's there for everybody to see if you can't see it what is your problem you know what are you looking for you're looking for a stereotype you're looking for Bob Dylan aren't you you're looking for the Beatles you're looking in the wrong place that was then this is now check this is happening now 
You know, just Google Grime Four, the number four, Corbin. Mm -hmm. It's all there, and they, and it's passionate, and it's real, you know, and it's on their own terms. I mean, that's the other thing as well. Corbin didn't come to them and said, "How about a photo op?" It's on their terms. All these things, I think, are deeply significant, and, and have, to me, echoes of what we were trying to do in punk and what the Skifflers were trying to do in their time as well, which was engage with the world on their own terms. I know you spend a lot more time in England than you do here stateside, but do you see that happening in, or do you have hope for that happening in America, in the United States, and seeing music have an impact on where we're at politically right now? Well, I think there are moments when it clearly does. I mean, you have to see Beyonce at the Super Bowl, uh, you know, making a point about Black Lives Matter, taking the opportunity to speak to a predominantly uh, white America audience that was tuning in. I think that was a, a good use. She has that platform and she's prepared to use that. Now, you know, it, there was a time when when all music did that, that where where um, if you were in a, a a band, you were part of an alternative society just by the nature of being in a band, because music wasn't mainstream. It was a, it was a youth oriented phenomenon. So everyone expected you to have ideas that were contrary to those believed by mainstream society. Now pop music is ubiquitous with advertising and, and the mainstream. But there are still people out there who are willing to, to use music to, you know, ask hard questions. Beyonce did it at the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And um, Leonard Sumner was the name of that indigenous Indian, uh, indigenous right. Canadian mm -hmm. um, at the, the folk festival. He did it, he's doing the kind of same thing. He's wow. kind of, you know, using his platform to speak his truth about what happened to his people and what's happening to them still. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's what you've got to do with music. You know, you've got to, you've got to use it as a, as a mirror and, and, a, and a truthful mirror as well, you know, to say, look, you know, this is, something's happening here and it's not right. We can't change that, but it's not our job to change that. It's your job to change it. You know, only the audience really has the power to change the world. Music doesn't have agency. Even Beyonce knows that. Mm -hmm. But... She has the ability through doing what she did to, to start a conversation, show people who are watching at home that they're not alone in, in what they feel about the way America is. And, and in these difficult times when there's so much cynicism out there, having a sense that you're not alone is, is and of itself a political act. You know, the currency of music is empathy. Whether you're Billy Bragg or Adele or whoever, you know, if you go, for instance, you go to an Adele concert and you, she sings a song that you've invested a particular emotion in, something that troubled you, you've linked to that song and she's singing it and 20,000 other people are singing it. Whatever that thing is you've, you've connected with that is accepted by everyone. You're accepted, you know, and you, it's not many places you can get that anymore. It's a form of solidarity, you know, all right? It's a much more specifically political at a Billy Bragg gig, but it's nonetheless more powerful at, a, at any gig where you suddenly feel you're not alone in, in, in being concerned about these things. And when we live in a time where the, the so-called alt-right seem to be waging a, a sort of low-level war on empathy... We need to stand up because empathy is our currency. That's what we do as musicians. We, we have the ability to make people feel something for someone they've never met before. That's what great music does for you, yeah? yeah? Now, it might be political, it might be a love song. You hear, a, you know, you think, oh, she's been through that, I've been through that. You know, maybe I can deal with this. If, if Adele can, you know, give me the strength, I can maybe deal with it. These are real important things, and they're all about understanding and, and 
compassion. And the far right and the right wing hate those things. That's why they're always, anybody who expresses any uh, empathy is dismissed as being politically correct or, um, or a virtue signaling. You know, they're scared of empathy because they know how powerful it is and they know that if you mix it with activism, you get solidarity and that's what they're really scared of. That's <laughs> what they're really, So we have, a, we have a, a responsibility in these times to ramp up the empathy in our songs and to tone down the cynicism. There's enough cynicism out there to go around for everybody, you know, and we have to be able to make people go away feeling that we can do something about this because, you know, Fox News wants you to feel that you're on your own. Nobody else cares about this stuff. That's not true. People do care about this stuff and we just need to, to, you know, be able, find some way to bring people together and music is capable of doing that. It's capable of bringing people together but it's not capable of achieving change. That's the responsibility of the audience. So as musicians, we have to remind people of that all the time. Out of all this studying you've done, writing the book about Skiffle and your work as a songwriter, what is it about a song that makes it succeed, either in terms of what you're saying about the political environment or in general? As a songwriter? Yeah. The songs of mine that connect with people the most are the ones where I reached the deepest into my own experience and was honest with myself and put it out there. So I think being true to yourself and being honest connects with other people. They recognise that honesty and they, they, they see a vulnerability in, in you and they respond to that in a generally in a positive way. They recognise that you're, you're, you know, you're, you're offering up your truth and for their, you know, in a, in a way that's kind of like you're, you're kind of putting yourself at their mercy and they tend to respond positively to that in my experience. So I would encourage anyone writing a song to try and do that as often as I can. What's your next book about, Billy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm back writing songs now. I'm firing songs off uh, one a month between now and Christmas. So I'm not really thinking about books at the moment apart from these ones I've got to sign in for the bookshop. Well, thank goodness for that. Thanks for your time, Bill. My pleasure, buddy. All thank right. You. Learn more about Billy at billybragg.co.uk. You'll find show notes and links for this episode and others at themedianarrative.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. The theme music was composed and recorded by Matt Jensen. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.